0: I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. It's been a rough half-century for Catholic schools in the United States. In the mid-1960s, Catholic schools educated some 5.6 million students in 13,000 schools nationwide. As of today, those numbers have fallen by more than half, with fewer than 2 million students attending 6,500 schools. But is there reason to believe those trends may turn around? Are Catholic schools finding new ways to become sustainable that will allow them to persist and possibly even to expand? I'm Marty West, Associate Editor of Education Next, and joining me today is Andy Smerick a partner at Bellwether Education and Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Along with Kelly Robson, Andy is the author of Innovation in Catholic Education, an article that has just appeared on the journal's website. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Andy.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm such a big fan of yours and EducationX. This is a real pleasure.
0: So I want to start off with your title, Innovation in Catholic Education, which surely will strike some listeners as an oxymoron. I mean, it's hard to imagine an organization more committed to the preservation of tradition than the Catholic Church, and I would think that many families who choose a Catholic school do so precisely because of that commitment. But your article makes the case that a range of innovative activity is in fact underway, and that this is not only a good thing, but essential. So we'll talk about examples of that activity in a moment, but I wonder if you could start out by helping us understand why it's so important to the future of Catholic education. What challenges are Catholic schools facing?
1: Great question. So uh, you kind of got at the heart of the issue, which is trying to find this balance between preservation or conservation and change. And for decades and decades and decades, while the rest of America was changing, the catholic church and its schools saw constancy as the ultimate virtue and in lots of cases this was smart it kept catholic schools from jumping from one fad to the next um and they a lot of the research suggests that catholic schools had found some magic in what they had been doing the ability to close the achievement gap and to help all kinds of different kids especially graduate from high school so there was there was value in remaining constant the problem was so much of the world had changed city demographics and laws and school choice that by remaining stuck in the way they had been doing things, they didn't evolve. And I did a bunch of reading about Thomas Jefferson and Edmund Burke as I was working on this project because there is this interesting balance between how do you um, reform without um, uh, totally undermining all the good things you're doing, but how do you make sure that you're doing enough of that, um, So you just sort of don't get stuck in the mud. So it's tricky, and this is what the article ended up being about, that you can preserve the stuff of Catholic education while questioning some of the things that had adhered to it for a long time, like how you do instruction or how schools are governed. Um, And the, the reason why we decided to do this project is it seems like for the very first time, probably since... I don't know, 18 the 1880s, when this system of Catholic schools that we know today really took off, that there are fundamental shifts happening. Um, and it looks like there's actually hope that this 50 years of decline may be turning around.
0: So what are the factors that are driving that decline in the first place before we jump into the uh, way in which they've tried to thread this needle? So you mentioned demographic shifts. Obviously, uh, Catholic schools, uh, oftentimes were created in urban areas where at the time there was a high concentration of Catholic, many immigrant families, uh, and that has has changed. What else has been uh, a cause of this decline?
1: Uh, it's, I think, easiest to see the rise of Catholic schools and then their decline as like evolutionary adaptations to what was happening in schools generally, but then in society at large. So what a lot of people don't recognize is that um, Catholic schools like didn't really exist much, even at the time of the Civil War into the latter part of the 19th century. But when there was just massive waves of European immigrants, most of whom were Catholics, and then the resulting anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant bias, um, everything from Blaine amendments to much, much more, there were all of these students, especially in our cities, who were Catholic. Their families felt under assault. Often public schools, the common schools of the era, weren't numerous enough to um, educate all the new kids who were coming all of these things sort of came together, um, and the bishops in the late 1880s decided um, in America every single parish had to have a Catholic school, and it was the obligation of parents to send their kids to these Catholic schools if the families were Catholic. and so. We just saw this rapid expansion from the late 19th century into until like 1965 when it peaked, and so all of these things factor together more and more growth. But then, when the factors that led to Catholic schools' growth started to dissipate, we saw all these other um, we saw the decline happen. So by 1965, we had uh, elected our first Catholic president, um, John F. Kennedy. So there was a whole lot less Catholic anti-Catholic bias in America. So fewer families felt the need to send their Catholic kids to these schools. Um, Many of these families uh, were now in their second or third or fourth generations in America's cities, and so they were moving out to the suburbs. Um, there were uh, more families who were moving into the cities where Catholic schools had been African Americans um, in particular were not Catholic. Uh, and so there all these shifts were taking place. and so like the need for Catholic schools started to go away and then all these other kind of changes in the public school system happened like higher salaries, unionization, and then ultimately school choice like charter schools um, took made had a competitive, impact on catholic schools that hurt them even more and so it's almost a perfectly unbroken streak of um, fewer catholic schools and fewer catholic school students from 1965 until today it's pretty remarkable
0: so clearly this is a crisis for the catholic school sector but you suggest it's also a problem for the nation so what do you think we lose if these trends continue
1: things. So first, there is a good body of research. Um, Tony Brake and a lot of others have been studying Catholic schools for quite some time. There's a great book, Catholic Schools and the Common Good. Um, there's actually an even more recent book from the University of Chicago Press um, on the, um, uh, the social capital values of Catholic schools. The point here is that The research seems to suggest that Catholic schools do a really good job of closing the achievement gap. The language that's been used is more equally distributing the benefits of education to kids regardless of their background. So African-American, Latino, low-income kids have a tendency to do better in these settings. The why is actually interesting, and I don't know if we have all the answers to that. So these schools are doing something that the nation needs, helping disadvantaged kids. But even beyond that, those of us who believe in school choice, like a necessary component of school choice is school options. And if we care about school options in America's inner cities, for ages, Catholic schools have been... Um, part of the fabric and they have given a just a set of different choices to families so as these schools disappear and all the good things that they do for kids and why families like them that actually uh, undermines our ability to actually give families alternatives within the system and it's not clear that um, the new types of schools that are emerging are totally uh, scratching the itch. They're doing all the things that Catholic schools do. And it gets to this point I alluded to earlier, this book, um, Lost Classrooms, Lost Communities, um, from two great professors at Notre Dame, who, for the first time, as far as I know, were able to measure the community impact, the social capital value of longstanding Catholic schools. The fact that these schools have been in their communities for a long time, they become part of the Fabric, and they actually, it appears, may um, inhibit the growth of crime, may have other kind of social values in their neighborhoods. So these are like really important um, patches in the quilt of. Um, and certainly America's system of schools. So you get rid of those and you know, something serious is lost.
0: That research is really interesting because, of course, the trailblazer when it came to research on Catholic schools was James Coleman, who argued that they did do a more effective job at the high school level of educating students, especially helping them graduate from high school, uh, especially disadvantaged students, and really attributed that advantage to the social capital in the community surrounding the school, but this uh, recent work is suggesting that the schools may actually produce social capital, not just benefit from it.
1: So, well, precisely, which is Totally fascinating because there actually is some research suggesting that low-performing schools in urban communities can actually deplete social capital, and so this would actually be a net positive from a school in a disadvantaged community. We need much more research on this, but it's groundbreaking.
0: Yeah, I think we we do need to read uh, learn much more uh, about that, but I think it is fascinating. So let's turn to some of the innovations that are the focus of your article, and you begin your list with. What you call school consortia? What are they?
1: Okay, so um, in order to answer that, we have to go back to how schools in the Catholic sector have generally been organized. So there's this um, kind of like a rule, a standard procedure in the Catholic Church called subsidiarity. the The gist is, in the Catholic Church, the view is as much as much power and as many decisions need to be driven. Um, down to the local level as possible. And so schools have, for a century, followed that same thing. So whereas we think of a school district as being a central office that micromanages, um, in some cases, hundreds of schools, a Catholic school system, for example, in New York or Chicago or Philadelphia, Buffalo, wherever it is, these schools have traditionally been parish-based, parochial. So the parish priest, the pastor, is in charge and makes all of these decisions. And they may loosely be affiliated through the diocese or archdiocese, but generally these schools, in a lot of cases, in a lot of senses, are one-offs. This... This has all kinds of problems, Uh, really the economies of scale, and as parishes shrink and there are fewer priests able to oversee their parishes, um, it's become untenable. So rather than um, creating gigantic behemoth Leviathan systems of Catholic schools um, to sort of like replicate a district, one of the methods that uh, some innovators are using is to slowly get these independent schools to work together, maybe share professional development, maybe share uh, ways of recruiting teachers, maybe share interim assessments. And so it's like a voluntary consortia of schools that had previously been independent, but are now trying to figure out how they can work together.
0: That's so interesting because it sounds directly analogous to some of the developments going on in the charter sector, where you have schools banding together to share common support services in various ways. And the next example you talk about in the article is even more sort of clearly linked to a charter model. You talk about private school management organizations which have the direct analog of the charter management organization. So how has that development proceeded in the Catholic sector?
1: So this may be the most exciting new thing that i am seeing in urban education generally over the past five years probably and so you were exactly right with this analog with cmos so what's happened very very quietly is the, the Catholic school sector, and in some cases the private school sector writ large, is learning from the CMO model, where you start with a single successful independent school, you create its model, you figure out like why it's working, and then you replicate it. So that this has worked in chartering. What's happening in the Catholic school sector, and we actually, Kelly and I, with another co-author, Julie Squire, wrote a paper for the Freedom uh, the Friedman Foundation on this. Uh, we call them PSMOs, Private School Management Organizations, um, and it's mostly in Catholic, but there are these other private school organizations that are doing the same thing. Um, and two different uh, segments of this like species. Or there's a genus, and there are two different species now. One are um, Catholic organizations, for example, Cristo Rey, starts a school, a high school, with a model related to work study and some other things. And then they create a bunch of different campuses in different cities. Um, And ACE, um, a program out of Notre Dame, is doing something similar. Um, And then the second species is taking a set of existing Catholic schools, like in New York City, there's an organization called Partnership Schools, or in Philadelphia, Independence Mission Schools, essentially taking existing Catholic schools away from their parishes and away from the diocese and creating a central office that manages them, although loosely, um, like a CMO. So you can do it one of two ways, start brand new Catholic schools under one on umbrella, or take existing Catholic schools and put them under um, a, a new umbrella. It's, I mean, The reason why I'm so excited about this is, we, if this works out, this could be comparable to what Aspire and KIPP and Achievement First were doing 15 years ago, like seeing the front edge of a new way of operating and governing and organizing schools that can then replicate and serve, hopefully, hundreds of thousands of low-income kids in the future.
0: Now, is all of this activity about achieving financial sustainability, or is it also about improving quality? Uh, You know, we've referenced positive research on the effectiveness of Catholic schools, especially at the high school level, but research on Catholic education is not uniformly positive, especially at the elementary level. And I think you yourself have written about the variation in performance within the sector. So is this a— is this financial sustainability or is it also quality improvement?
1: Both certainly. And the two are intertwined in really interesting ways. So, um, Often what happens with a Catholic school in an urban area over the past half century is, you know, it used to be a K-8 that served a thousand kids, and then it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, and then they lose teachers and they lose administrators, Um, and then next thing you know it's 150, 175 students, and they can't really pay their teachers very much. Um, and they have to charge more tuition, but the families can't pay it. So you see these two things going together, a decrease in quality as well as a decrease in financial sustainability. And so some of these new models, what they – At least give the promise of doing is if you have a central office that can figure out either through philanthropy or through public programs how to create a financial model that is sustainable in the long term, Um, being able to do recruitment of teachers and principals and retainment and PD and all types of kind of supports. If you can do that centrally and have modest tuition payments, not only could you uh, slowly ratchet up your enrollment, which a lot of these PSMOs and uh, consortia are proving they can do. If you increase your enrollment, that's more money coming in the door and economies of scale, meaning you can lead to sustainability. Um, but then also, as you get more students, you can have more staff. And presumably, we're hoping and we're starting to see indications that these schools are actually turning out to be higher performing. Now, to your point, it could be the case that some of these models lead to greater sustainability financial, but the results don't improve. Or it could be the case that the results are improving. And we actually saw this in Washington, D.C., about a decade ago, where there were there's a consortium of about 10 schools that were doing remarkably better in their results, but they couldn't get financial sustainability right. So it's still an open question. Can you do both sustainability and improved the student outcomes? But that's the hypothesis that this new movement is trying to get to that.
0: Now, how much of this activity is being driven by or at least supported with government programs that subsidize private school choice through vouchers or tax credit funded scholarships? I noticed that Many of the examples you cite in the article of innovation taking place are based in cities like Indianapolis, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia, in which Catholic schools can benefit from those types of programs.
1: Precisely. And this is one of the most fascinating elements of this evolution, and we're still on the front edge, and we don't know how this is going to play out, but this is what it seems is happening right now. In places where there aren't, Um, private school programs like vouchers or tax credits. We're seeing more of these uh, umbrella PSMO networks that are taking in existing Catholic schools. So what they're trying to do is figure out a way, given that there's no public money, to use philanthropy more strategically to save the schools that are there. So this is why there's the partnership schools in New York City, no voucher, no tax credit program, trying to manage a set of um, schools that are in jeopardy of closing and make them. Better, But what we're also seeing is this really neat phenomenon where these private school, Catholic school entrepreneurs, and there's even a new venture philanthropy um, called the Drexel Funds that is doing this, they are saying long-term sustainability for these schools is absolutely contingent on reliable streams of income, uh, meaning public programs, so places like Cristo Rey, places like the ACE Academies, and um, some of these even non-Catholic uh, that are getting started in whether it's Florida or Indiana, they are, per- they are specifically going to places that have these public programs. So another hypothesis here that we should keep an eye out for is it could be the case that we see growth in high-quality Catholic schools in the states that created these public programs, whether voucher or tax credits, It may turn out – we may look back 10 years from now and say, oh, good charter laws created the conditions so great charter schools and CMOs could expand, and the analog could be, oh, great voucher and tax credit programs created the environment where these new PSMOs or networks of schools can get traction and then grow. Again, hypothesis, but we're starting to see – we have reasons to believe this could be the case.
0: Well, then I want to close by putting you on the record. So we started off by saying we've gone from 5.6 million students in the mid-1960s to fewer than 2 million students today attending Catholic schools. Where are we going to be in, say, 2030, 15 or so years from now?
1: Great question. Um, There, One thing we point out in the article um, is that Although the Hispanic population in America has been growing enormously, the percentage of Hispanic uh, Latino students who are going to Catholic schools is still, in America, infinitesimal for a bunch of reasons. If the Catholic Church is trying to change that, they're trying to have more Latino families choose Catholic schools, if that works out, we could see that be a huge area of growth. If that doesn't happen, um, and we sort of just keep on the same trajectory, what I think is we're going to see a slowing of the closures of schools And then it just becomes a matter of can this PSMO consortium model start new schools, replicate schools. So I don't think in the foreseeable future we're going to see this 5.6 million students again, but I'm cautiously optimistic that if these programs expand, for example, Maryland just this week, who would have thought Maryland passed a private school scholarship program. If these voucher tax credit scholarship programs continue to expand across the nation, there are like 60 of them now, there's going to be more reliable money available. If we have more Catholic school entrepreneurs creating more schools, cautiously optimistic, we could get back up to 3 million kids in the foreseeable future, but there's so many variables, it's hard. I certainly wouldn't bet a 1000 bucks on that, at least not yet.
0: My guest today has been Andy Smerick, whose new article, Innovation in Catholic Education, is available now at educationnext.org. I learned a lot from the article, and I'm sure others will as well. Andy, thank you for the article and for the conversation.
1: Thanks for having me. Take care.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.